0: On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Allison Place. Allison is a designer, educator, and writer who works at the intersection of feminism and design to create space for critical making and radical speculation. She's the author of Feminist Designer on the Personal and Political in Design, published by MIT Press this year in 2023. She's an assistant professor of graphic design at the University of Arkansas School of Art, where she also serves as the director of the Graphic Design Program. She's held several leadership roles in the design community, including two terms on the AIGA Design Educators Community National Steering Committee, and has earned multiple national awards for her scholarship and creative work. It took a little bit of scheduling and, and a little bit of back and forth, but I'm, I'm overly excited for this conversation, and I'm really happy to welcome Allison to the Deep Dive. How are you?
1: Hi Philip, thank you for having me. I'm great. How are you?
0: I'm all right. You know, it's 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 Monday, you know, <laughs> like people will will eventually hear this episode likely in 2024 mm-hmm. and it will be on a Thursday because I release episodes on Thursdays, but we're recording it on a Monday and all I can say is hey, it's Monday. Right?
1: I feel you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, but despite the Monday blues, we're going to have a great conversation and this This book is really an an amazing collection of of other thinkers and and scholars and those who are are wrestling with the idea of feminism within the the larger scope of design. One of the things I, I really enjoyed about this book and your role as as an editor, that you were also quite a contributor. To the book, each each section of the book leads off with a essay that you wrote, and you also have um, various interviews in the chapters that that you were the the um, questioner for. So many times when I come across an anthology, I'm always hard pressed sometimes to talk to the person who put it together because they're putting together other people's words and. I don't want to hold them accountable for every person's essay and thought and all the rest of it. But in this case, I can hold you accountable for your own stuff. So so you've made my job even easier. (laughs) So I appreciate that. So I'm going to start off with getting a sense for what was sort of the, the backdrop or the intention for putting a, a collection like this together?
1: Yeah, there's a few answers to that question, um, and I go into this a little bit in the preface of the book about um, where the book came from. But it it doesn't it doesn't do a deep dive, so to speak, into the real process, the real background. The short answer to this question is, I wrote the book that I needed at the time that I that I was um, I was in graduate school actually, and I was just starting to do research um, and I was trying to understand. How to incorporate feminism into my research, and there were not enough resources for me at that time. Um, there's also an anecdote that I share in the preface of the book um, about kind of a critical moment. You might call it uh, a feminist click. Uh, there's many feminist clicks throughout my life, but it was a big one as far as my work goes, where I was I was mistreated, and uh, my research was nearly sabotaged because of a very bitter professor at the the school where I was doing my graduate degree. And the context of this was the 2016 election in the United States. And um, the way that I was treated in that moment left me feeling really isolated and really alone and really seeking out guidance and mentorship um, specifically related to feminist ways of doing design and feminist ways of doing research. So yeah, part of the answer is just that I I needed a book (laughs) to turn to in that moment um, and throughout my graduate studies, um, and it didn't really exist. At the time, the field of feminist design was, I don't want to say it was beginning to emerge because it's something that's been emerging for decades, Um, but I want to say the feminist design moment that we are in, I think, was just starting to emerge at that time. This was about 2017. And... At that time, we did not have the resources and platforms that we do today. Um, We didn't have many books such as Data Feminism or uh, Design Justice. We didn't have many platforms like Futures and other conferences that have happened recently. So there was a lot to be desired uh, in that time um, in the way of sharing and disseminating knowledge about feminist design. Another way to answer this question is about, um, you know, when I started to actually um, work on this book, what was the motivation behind the content and the way that I wrote it and, um, and the things that are um, within the pages? Um, I think that something I was observing when I started teaching, well, I started teaching about nine years ago, but I really noticed this after the 2016 election, I'll say. Um, something I noticed in my students was a very strong desire to bring their social values and political values and feminist values to their design work, you know, taking on really big topics in their projects like reproductive justice and mental health. But alongside that passion that they were bringing to their work, I observed a real lack of Knowledge around things like structures of power and class politics and other race politics, things like that. So I saw this, you know, this group of people with a tremendous amount of potential to affect change through their design work, um, you know, especially as they graduate and go out into the world. And I really wanted them to have the tools to actually make a difference and to actually be able to make change where they wanted to. Um, so I think that's most, that's the most um, salient motivation throughout this book is I wrote this book for my students. I, I wrote it for this current generation of students who um, are very motivated, but um, I wanted them to understand, you know, what it means when they say they're a feminist. Um, I wanted them to have a little bit of feminist history, a little bit of feminist theory, in an accessible way that they could uh, understand and apply to their work, um, but something that felt really actionable to them.
0: It's, it's interesting that you recount both this micro, these micro stories, i.e., kind of sharing with us exactly where you were in this particular moment. You know, having to deal with, you know, a, a bad academic environment and situation, which. Though I am not an academic, I, I I follow and spend a lot of time around academics. and these things seem more common than um <laughs> than than not, um particularly when when folks are pursuing um advanced degrees, right? where their their um success is often tied to a, a very close working relationship with another person in in the faculty. it's um it's amazing how often. I've heard these these similar stories, you know. With while understanding each person's set of circumstances and stories are are different, um, but you're you're facing this this very personal, um, very personal trial and needing a, a something to turn to, right? But then reflecting it out to seeing a need among the students that you're that you're also working with, so um I'm curious given the fact that the book you know having gone through it in 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 a fair amount of detail is so well um, is so well researched pulls from so many different types of of folks where feminism and and feminist theories are influencing their work as an outsider I, I see all this and I'm like how is this huge canon of information, why has it taken it so long to be pulled together in a volume like yours? Because it it begs me to think, how are people doing this work or how have people been doing this work without something like this?
1: (laughs) I think that there's there's a lot of possible answers to that question, I think the question of why hasn't work like this been platformed in a really serious way, I think speaks to the nature of things like publishing and, you know, the way power works in the publishing industry. But I also think that there's something about the way feminism has been regarded uh, writ large over the past few decades that comes into play there too, because um, part of my feminist history, (laughs) my upbringing and my, Introduction to Feminism has to do with, you know, the eras of the 90s and the the early aughts when women like me were taught that we don't need feminism anymore. Um, and we were taught that uh, the women's movement resolved everything for us and we were free to go ahead and do whatever we want and become anything we want to be. And I think that for a lot of young people who were raised that way, there was like a really hard crash <laughs> somewhere in their adolescence or maybe later um, where they realized that that wasn't true. So I think the way that um, feminism is being regarded now um, has a lot to do with things that happened in the 2010s, such as the introduction of girl boss feminism and the lean-in era met with the 2016 election in the United States. All of these things have been big moments uh, in the evolution of feminism recently. And I think right now specifically what we're seeing is a humongous backlash to the uprising of feminism again. So I think some of those major movements in recent decades has really changed the way Feminist work is platformed, the way that it is shared, the way that it is regarded. But to your point, none of this is new. And that's actually one of the bigger messages I wanted to convey to the reader is that, you know, so much of this seems of a moment, so much of this seems, you know, relevant because of specific contexts. But also, most of this is theory and history that's decades, if not centuries, old. And we should be familiar with that history. We, we must be familiar with that foundation of theory so that we can, can continue to evolve feminism and move it forward.
0: You know, I think this is a, a perfect time to, to ask an, another question. This is one of those rare times where I, I likely have like a little bit of a question written down um, <laughs> rather than just a, a muse. You know, actually I just have like, Feminism slash feminist question mark. So again, (laughs) makes a lot of sense to me. Probably wouldn't make sense to anybody else. But I tackle that pretty early in my notes because the notion of feminism, I want to pluralize that as much as I possibly can. Like you said very eloquently, it's one where there's incredible backlash. Maybe it feels like there's a heavier backlash in, in this moment, I'm sure, there people never felt like there wasn't a backlash right, <laughs> against right. against against asking for um a, a, a full participation and and acknowledgement of your humanity exactly. um vis-a-vis the patriarchy. so um you know, I'm on the record as like I'm totally tired of men, right <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I can say these things because I don't give a shit, you know, but <laughs> not inviting anyone to agree agree with me necessarily. But I'm like, all these articles that have been written about men are having such a hard time. I'm like, fuck off, Who cares, right? Like Scott Galloway, I don't give a shit what you have to say about that.
1: Right? <laughs> what <laughs> like, will we do about the men? <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh, my God. It's so hard. They're all dying so early and they're so stressed. All these young guys don't know what to do. Read a fucking book, all right? <laughs> like, I just solved your whole problem. Read a book, all right? Absolutely. And stop listening to idiots online, right? Like Jordan yeah. Peterson, you know, and other acolytes of stupidity. So
1: yeah.
0: to my question, though, <laughs> and, and away from my rant, because um, I really do detest those people. This is a such a myriad of... Of movements that have an ebb and a flow to them. They have definitions that shift over time. We've kind of highlighted some of those examples a little bit when you talk about lean in and that sort of girl boss and, you know, other terminology that people will use to to kind of align themselves, I think, with the patriarchy more than anything that's actually feminist. But Having said all that, I want to give you an opportunity to share how you think about feminism in order to frame this book. Right. Because obviously people can pull their own thing, but you had to go forward with a working way of kind of aligning this. So I want to hear kind of how you how you kind of pull that all together.
1: Yeah, it reminds me of a question that I get a lot (laughs) since I've been working on this book, which is, what is feminist design? And my answer to that question is, there is no definition of feminist design, and that's the point. But I think the fact that feminist design is indefinable is actually its, its strength, um, and that, as you said, you know, the way that there's an ebb and flow, and there's a push-pull, and that tension is is the definition. That's the defining trait uh, of feminist design and, and being a feminist designer. But the reason that I wanted to bring feminism to design, or bring design to fem- feminism, might be a even more accurate way to describe it, is because the way that I have seen. The design discipline evolve over the past few decades left me feeling very worried <laughs> about our ability to meet the challenges of the moments um, that are that are current, but also our forthcoming challenges such as reproductive justice, climate change, the rise of fascism, neoliberal capitalism, social injustice, exploitation of labor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the ways that we are equipped to meet those challenges as designers, to me, really it, it really fell short. I think in order to design for such complex problems, we needed to look at what we were doing and understand the ways that our discipline is deeply patriarchal, um, You know, built on male-centered views, uh, built on Um, individualism, ego, you know, taught to be neutral actors, um, this, this patriarchal way of approaching problems, um, this idea that you can move fast and break things and fix anything. It's a really male-centered view. um, And I think it's one that has contributed to, you know, leading us to this moment in our, our, our current political and social climate. And historically, the, the view that rejects the patriarchal underpinnings of design has um, what I say in the book is that the feminist refrain has always been inclusion and representation of women. You know, acknowledging that more designers are women than men, but by far more leaders in design are men than women. Um, Same thing for students. Most of my students are women, but, you know, more uh, leadership in, in the design world is Uh, is men. So there is this assumption that if we just get more women into design, if we just get more women into leadership, you know, there'll be some effect that trickles down and and resolves all of this. And the entire argument of the book is that that is wrong, that that is not going to save us. Um, And the subtext of that is women can be just as complicit in patriarchy as men. And men can be just as feminist as other women. So you know focusing on who is doing the design, um, I felt was a really narrow way of understanding feminist approaches to, to design. So the point of this book is to expand that understanding of feminism as it relates to what we do as designers, to focus on our methods, our tools, our, you know, our theories, our ways of seeing the world, our ways of building relationships with people, um, our ways of collaborating, this book, you know, shines a light on all of those things while, you know, arguing that, you know, representation and inclusion are certainly things we should still be working towards, but we need to focus less on who, the, who that individual designer is and more about what they're contributing to, what they're doing, what their capabilities are to affect change.
0: And that opens up an, another opportunity for us to 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 jump into a, another trickier piece of this, right? Or at least tricky, tricky to me, because I, I wrestle with it a lot in the sense that, like you said, uh having more of of any archetype of person doesn't mean that the the institution is is changing, right? Mm-hmm. Like
1: exactly
0: I'm you know I'm not gonna well I kind of do pick on Obama, but you know having having a a black president didn't change American foreign policy in any any significant way, right? Yeah. When I'm talking about the, the the broader context of empire, yes, was he better than George W. Bush? Yes, was he better than Trump? Yes. yes. Was Was America still a, a a symbol of empire? Yes, right. Yeah. So
1: because he was enmeshed in the same power structures yeah. that have always existed.
0: Yeah, you're not gonna Dennis Kucinich that, right? And, <laughs> and start talking about like, oh, we need a department of peace, right? As much as I might think that's an awesome idea, right? That that dude was not going to become president talking that shit, right? You got to, if you want to be president, you got to put on the flag pin and you got to start talking crazy shit, right? That just, yeah. that would make sense to nobody else but an American. Only Americans can absorb a certain level of stupidity as leadership.
1: Yeah. Right? And to that point, I think it, it brings a, attention to the fact that navigating that tension often requires us to know when to speak radically and to attempt to act radically and when to, um, you know, hold it closer to the chest and uh, play along sometimes and being strategic about how you uh, build relationships within, you know, unfair systems or unequal structures and things like that. So it is a real it's not one or the other it's it's often both
0: and it's and it's and it's hard right mm-hmm. like when i look out onto the world right and i could see where you know all this girl boss and all that shit is seductive right like people i mean the the ink that was wasted on the the depth of a barbie movie for example right like this is supposed to be like a a pinnacle of you know, empowerment politics. And I'm like, this shit's really about a doll, right? Like, <laughs> let's let's calm down, right? Like, let's put but this in perspective. But it put
1: the word patriarchy in the mouths of a lot of people who wouldn't normally be talking about patriarchy. <laughs> I,
0: I, I'll take it, I guess. <laughs> you know, like, nothing against Margot Robbie should come on the show anytime, right? But, um, you know, I, I just feel like there's, calm down. Right. So yeah. th- that's, that's where I kind of look at, at when inclusion in the DEI model, and you reference a little bit of this in, in the book, right, is, is held to such, to such a high level of achievement. You know, we, we run into this challenge of not really looking at power relationships and, and power dynamics. And you do, I, I think, a really good job of introducing the the political power of feminism as compared to what I just wrote in my notes, like pop culture, feminism. Right. So having said that, like, did you also feel that it was important to make that distinction versus Meshing them in some kind of way to to make it more palpable, maybe.
1: I think it's a great question. This distinction between, you know, certain feminist politics versus pop culture feminism, and one of my favorite examples of this in the book is there was a a year where Beyonce went on tour, um, and she projected the giant word feminist behind her. Um, and everyone was so excited because, you know, they were so proud to be, you know, taking charge with that word and owning, owning that word. It's not a dirty word anymore. We can call ourselves feminists. And um, the backlash to that was interesting, especially because it came from Bell Hooks. Bell Hooks, who is one of the greatest feminist thinkers of, of our time, she wrote an article and also gave an interview in response to that and she was highly critical of the performance politics of feminism, including especially Beyonce at that time. And I that felt like a really important message to echo throughout the book, to echo throughout it's you know, it's the way that I talk to my students about feminism. Um, I think the internet really created this perception around doing feminism um, in a way that was extremely performative, but for some reason also validated in a lot of ways. And Bell Hook's, you know, her criticism was about bringing feminism, you know, away from the performance and back to critical thinking and, and, you know, thinking critically about how to make change. And I think that that was an important distinction between what was happening in the pop culture realm of feminism. And, you know, I would include, you know, Barbie is a great example of that too. It's, it's not something that means nothing. It's not something um, that doesn't have a positive effect on, you know, feminism writ large, but it's not everything. And it's certainly often arguably a distraction from what is actually happening. You know, is, is Barbie going to change um, the effect of Dobbs and the overturning of Roe v. Wade? Um, You could argue that there's, uh, you know, a potential line of, you know, possibility for that to happen. But also that's not where, that's not where we are um, going to make, you know, strides uh, Oh yeah, in protecting Absolutely. our reproductive rights, so to speak.
0: And, and this is the challenge of all of this stuff, right? And and trust me, I'm not derailing our conversation into Beyonce and, <laughs> you know. Plus, for the I, record, I, don't
1: I don't love want... Beyonce. <laughs> yeah, you got to say that, right? <laughs>
0: You have to say like that. Bell Hooks right? was the
1: one who spoke out about it.
0: I don't want no smoke from the beehive, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> like that that kind of heat I don't need in, in my life, right? So believe neither of us are against Beyonce, but I am a lover of Bell Hooks, right? So I gotta I gotta throw my my lot in with with Bell Hooks in that conversation only because this is part of the of the debate, right? To the extent that it is a debate, that how much do these things matter? Like you said it perfectly. They they don't not matter, right? Because people can come to something how they come to it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm the first person to say we have Obama because of 24. Like 20 24 was a was a very pro. Torture show, right? <laughs> you know, coming coming out of um 9-11 and all that kind of stuff. But I think seeing a, a black dude run for president and, and should become president, I think softened the road for Obama, right? Like, you know, in a in a very easy way. Yeah, that dude had to do a whole bunch of other stuff, but you know, we can't discount the pop culture stuff. But moving forward a little bit, I think we do have to, to wrestle with the, the power structures, right? That it's great for Beyonce to be successful, right? It's great. And Taylor Swift would probably be a more modern, uh, you know, fast forwarding it, right? She being the same thing, oh, she's a billion dollar industry, right? And, you know, Jay-Z has a line, what's better than one billionaire, two billionaires, right? But if you're engaged with radical policy, particularly that's including feminism, you know, if I was sitting with Jay, he's my favorite rapper, I'd be like, brother, the, the Billionaires, no billionaires <laughs> is a more feminist mm-hmm. response. Absolutely. Right. But when you're when you're caught in this, right, this vortex of capitalism and everything that comes with it, it's it's hard to distinguish that, right? Because folks folks now see themselves as the solution. You know, like because Jay got into beef with Harry Belafonte about that, right? Like before he, like, this way before he died, you know, Harry Belafonte just passed a few months ago, right? But this dude was a fucking giant. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Jay, you my favorite rapper, but you ain't no fucking Harry Belafonte, (laughs) right? Like, despite the money. Like, I wish you were, but you're not, right? So that that gets us back to, you know, how does one escape, to the extent that they can, that gravitational pull of sort of the capitalist state Mm -hmm. that we are in, when the feminist argument the the pure feminist argument not the girl boss argument is is attempting for something that looks very different mm-hmm. than than that vortex you know so so how do we pull those things apart
1: yeah that's a theme that i i really wanted to stress throughout this book which is the extent to which feminist politics are anti-capitalist and to demonstrate ways to bring critical thinking to, like you said, power structures and especially economic power structures, um, and picking those apart and understanding the ways that those those neoliberal politics, those ways of um, the, the focus on capital, the way that this has co-opted feminism, uh, as you said, you know that's the girl boss era of feminism, that's the lean in era of feminism, um, and I wanted readers to understand that there are so many ways to do feminism that are anti-capitalist, and they are, you know, deeply meaningful. You know, focusing on things like community and things like care. You know, those are two big themes of the book as well. So, I think there's a there's a great quote in the community chapter of one of my dear colleagues, um, a great mentor, and also. I think one of the great feminist thinkers of our time is Dr. Lisa Corrigan. And uh, I quoted her saying that feminism is about freedom. It's not feminism if it does not free us. And that is especially true for the capitalist constraints, the neoliberal capitalist constraints that we are working within today. So bringing that critical lens to everything you do everything you see is a great way to understand how feminism can intervene. Um, And that's not to say that, you know, we can't support Beyonce because she's a billionaire. (laughs) It's both. And Uh, we can still love Beyonce and also, you know, bring critical thinking to the economic powers that keep her in place (laughs) and, you know, bring her capital and the way that those same power structures.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, there's, that allows me to kind of get into an, another point that I really wanted to emphasize is because when you talk about community, you talk about care, those are realities that do not exist. Well, I'm not gonna say they do not exist, but they are not, they're not where designers think they're starting right? Because you, you, you said earlier, and this weaves throughout the book, you mentioned neutrality. And I kind of underlined in my notes, this um, idea of being objective, right? That many professions say this, but I think design is one of them to kind of lay on this, like, oh, you know, well, I'm not supposed to really be involved. You know, I can only do my work if I'm somewhat objective, right? Journalism does this, right? Which I think opens up a whole host of, of issues, right? Because again, now that we're drilling into the design part of this, the very nature of how design is typically done is to emphasize a a, a separation from you as expert or practitioner to those who need something, right? Whether mm-hmm. <laughs> there's an organization or a group or there's some problem, you're up on high now solving the problem right and again
1: that i alone can fix it
0: (laughs) yeah caring community seem to be in somewhat of a contrast to that so i want to i want to give you an opportunity to kind of talk about that objectivity and how a feminist perspective can challenge it
1: this topic is um the it's the critical theme of the second chapter which is about knowledge and there are a lot of ways that feminism rejects objectivity um, and specifically in the book I write about Donna Haraway and her theories around situated knowledge and you know Donna Haraway was writing about research usually um, in her criticisms of patriarchy uh, she was writing about science and scientific research, um, but everything she wrote was very relevant to designers. She talks about this God trick, quote, of objectivity. And that sounds just like a designer, right? This <laughs> this God trick of, you know, I alone can fix it. I can I can make anything to fix a problem, or I can jump into any situation, figure it out, intervene, make something, drop something there, and leave. That's a really... That's that's what we're taught in in design school is that le- that level of expertise, which usually translates into ego um, and competition between other designers. And the way that this is addressed in the book, and especially it's addressed so beautifully through the contributors who are a part of the book and especially that chapter on knowledge, um, they demonstrate ways that you can be a designer without, even trying to be objective or neutral without, you know, having to bear that burden of, of that supposed neutrality. And, you know, a lot of people ask me why the book is called feminist designer and not feminist design. It's because it's about that. It's about that embodiment of your role in a process. It's about your situated knowledge as a person, as a human, um, you know, how you bring that to the way that you design. So, The idea that situated knowledge is a bad thing is what, you know, these feminist thinkers and especially Donna Haraway, but um, you know, Bell Hooks wrote about this too. And um, throughout that chapter, I think there's examples of this situated designing from situated knowledge is, is a good thing. It's necessary to build relationships with the people you're designing with or for, but it also, it prevents you from having that ego and that, you know being blinded by your own expertise um, and allows you to see something for what it is and acknowledge that the way that you see it is entirely shaped by the body you're in or the background that you have or you know the way that you were brought up or the context that you're in or where you are all of these things are deeply shaping how we see what we're doing as designers and to ignore that is a very dangerous thing and is what leads us to cause harm to communities um, and create things that bring harm to other people Um, so it is in our best interest it is in everyone else's best interest if we acknowledge the embodied experience from which we are designing
0: and you know i want to i want to stay on on the knowledge train for a little bit because what i often kind of think about whether it's in the context of, of feminism or other of design or other schools of thought is how much the the categor, the categorization or assignment of knowledge matters and and what i mean by that is the the western canon by and large they only think certain things are knowledge and other things aren't knowledge it's it's like you know when when i when i have this conversation with folks and we talk about like oh they'll say like oh it's science right and i'm like well like science is one of those things that's kind of considered to be objective it's infallible by it's by most people yeah it's science right like oh this is Hard the tracks. way it is <laughs> and i'm like well i don't know about that right like a lot of what we and this is where it gets tricky right because there's there's Lunatics who will who will use their their um fear of known science, things like vaccines and stuff like that to kind of say like we can't trust anybody. And it's all big pharma, right? You know, like just picture like a lunatic like Russell Brand screaming into a microphone, right? So you're not going in that direction, <laughs> right?
1: Well it's funny that you say that because the opening <laughs> to that chapter. Is a little anecdote about COVID vaccines, mm-hmm. and I use that anecdote. It's about you know um, the ways that there was no research about the way COVID vaccines would impact women's menstruation.
0: Menstruation, yeah.
1: And I use that anecdote because I thought it's a perfect and you know timely example of the ways that science has. Um, ignored women's knowledge and my editor and and a peer reviewer both flagged that and said oh I don't want this to sound like an anti-vaxxer argument and I was like okay fair because this was the moment of you know anti-vaxxers but also you know it's it's we need to be able to think critically about science it doesn't mean that we do not value science but it still needs to be you know we need to bring a critical eye to it. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Like you know, you know, I I remember that example because, again, the idiots will use anything at all to twist their argument, right? And it's why you know, I get people who are like, oh, you talk so dismissively about people who don't hold your perspective. And I'm like, of course I do, right? Because one, it's my show, and two. <laughs> They don't, they don't deserve, like Russell Brand does not deserve like an honest interrogation of his ideas, right? Like, or insert anyone like him, right? He's just a, a popular avatar, but these people have huge audiences of dummies that believe everything they say and they're completely unserious people,
1: mm-hmm.
0: except in their own imaginations, right? But I think there is something to be said for introducing knowledge deep knowledge of things that don't exist within just the one perspective and i think that's where so many of these these feminist ideas add value right Mm -hmm. because i there's a essay in the book i'm not going to remember exactly the framing of it but it talks about um, um child care in black communities and. There's, you know, the numbers of disparity of um, in health outcomes for Black women that are pregnant versus white women are huge, mm-hmm. right? So anyone interested can do a very quick Google search and find a ton of information on that. Like, I'm not even going to attempt to repeat it, right? But there are lots of traditions within the Black community that have nothing to do with standard going to Mount Sinai medicine, Right. And even the notion of like a doula, midwife, all these different traditions. Mm-hmm. But yet I see these things being like, like there's a place in, I live in Brooklyn and Brooklyn is like, it's not called a doula center, but it's like they're using the doula name to sort of market this now concept because like wealthier women now want to do this. Right. Where it's like, this was people thought you were crazy. You know, 15 years ago, if you were talking about like, oh, I'm not going to a hospital, I'm gonna use like a doula for they'd be like, What's a doula? Then they'd be like, Oh, that sounds like some witchcraft shit, right? Like yeah. people wouldn't fuck with you.
1: Well, that was a classic way of ostracizing midwives from from modern medicine was um, you know, cluster them up with the witches yeah. and yeah, and the doula's that yeah, it's it's a way of uh delegitimizing women's contribution to to medicine and also the ways that I could talk. We could have a whole separate podcast about yeah, this this whole is a separate because, conversation. Uh, maternal health and reproductive justice are other threads of my research that I am deeply uh, invested in. But to bring it back to knowledge, that's that Western view of knowledge, that um that almost paranoid view of like I can know everything, that godlike view. We Knowledge is out there. We can find it. We can conquer it. We can find it and, and use it. It's ours. Uh, it's that imperialist view of, of Western knowledge that, you know, that perspective is really deeply threaded into design in ways that I think are even surprising to some people. But yeah, to your point about um, Black knowledge specifically, I think there's a lot of examples in the book of the ways that Black women specifically engage or do not engage with feminism and why. And I think that the issue of knowledge is kind of the crux of that, you know, the knowledge that they have and the ways that Western views around knowledge have discriminated against their knowledge.
0: Yeah. And all the things we've sort of woven through this, right, is that it's 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 worth something if you can put a dollar sign on it, if you can market it, yeah. right? If you can put it into a market concept, then it becomes worth it. Yeah,
1: exactly. Right.
0: If it if it can't be done that way, then it's not it's either not real or not worth it at all. So when i when i was reading through the book it seemed like there was an underlying call for an expansion of knowledge you know what we perceive as knowledge is it would you say that's a kind of an accurate reading on my part or is that just my wishful thinking
1: yeah no absolutely
0: <laughs> You know, because it's 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 so important and um it, it leans me into um another question i'm keeping an eye on the time here to make sure we we get you out on time when we talk so much about community that that again is woven throughout the book and i think it's it's i think it's fair to say it's one of the key components of feminism and feminist feminist values and and so forth but yet it it seems that community is a harder thing to nurture when we are um confronted with so many challenges of identity. And and it's not to imply that feminist movements are any more, fall victim to this more than others, but I'm going to want to talk about them through this lens, right? So that always seems to me to be such a paradox, right? That community lies so much at what I would consider the call among many different types of, of feminist thinkers, but yet seems hard to do in, in practice, even among people who are kind of sharing, sharing these ideas. So I'm, I'm curious how you see, or if you even see design playing a role in bridging some of that, some of those challenges.
1: Yeah, it's a great question there's a lot of discussion of that in in that chapter, the last chapter of the book about community, kind of grappling with that question of what makes a community feminist and vice versa, what makes a group of feminists a community? And there's several dialogues in that chapter that I think really delve into that in in a beautiful way. I'm thinking of a quote from Mandy Harris-Williams, who is part of the Feminist Center for Creative Work in L.A., and one of her statements about being a community is that uh, she says, well, you know, we all try, but sometimes we're assholes, too. <laughs> and that's, I think that's such an important... No, that's thing. right. <laughs> <laughs> that's such an all, important point. All my point. friends who are
0: listening to this are like,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and... I talk about this in, in various chapters throughout the book, the ways that community and sisterhood have evolved within feminism over the decades, um, le- the recent decades. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that community doesn't necessarily mean just a group of people who all get along. Um, it could often mean the opposite. But if you have shared goals, there can still be really deep roots in community so much of feminism and so much of the movements of feminism and the, the things that we achieved through feminist movement were achieved because people who genuinely disagreed or, or did not like each other found ways to build relationships and work together to make change. And I think that that's something we really forget about these days is that the importance of building relationships, building coalitions with people who you don't necessarily always agree with. Just the nature of doing politics. It's the nature of doing feminist politics. And yeah, sometimes we can be assholes and everybody can be an asshole sometimes. But our job is not to only seek out people who we get along with and share, you know, everything in common with. Our job is to reach out and to build relationships and build coalitions with People who are very different from us, who have different views, but have a shared purpose and have a shared goal.
0: I, I want to start to get us out on this and, and get to the drop, but I 100% agree with everything you're saying, right? But it, it feels like, and I'm I'm not an organizer, so I'm not in those spaces. But you know, I read, I talk to people, right? And um it seems, as a person kind of on the outside looking in, that there's a perception of scarcity, you know, because, and I say perception because, you know, I'm not talking about the scarcity of like, oh, there's no eggs in the supermarket. But like, I think the world is a a very abundant place. But in the models that we live in, everybody feels like is every person for themselves, right? Like you're kind of fighting for that gig, you're fighting for that grant, you're fighting for that contract, whatever it is, like you got to go up against the unknown, unseen others that are vying for the same thing, right? That's so I the think point of
1: capitalism, right? That yeah, scarcity mindset. Yeah, minds they got it. us. Yeah.
0: It's like invisible man, keep that boy running, right? Like they got us all on this treadmill, right? But then there's the trauma argument, right? And it's not to dismiss whatever someone has gone through, right? But... Sometimes again as a complete layman before all the therapist people start hitting me up, right? I'm a complete layman, right? That I hear people talk about they trying to organize, but then they bring in like, oh, I got this historical trauma, I got this, I got that. And I'm like, yo, it's real it's gonna be real hard for you to organize if you start in there, <laughs> right? Like, and I'm not, like, I'm not dismissing. I know my voice. I do this voice that makes it sound like I'm doing that. I'm really trying not to do that. But I'm like, I could tell the story, right? Like I'm a 50 year old, 51 year old black dude, you know, like I get it. Right. And others have their own situations. But if I'm trying to build with another person, I can't, sometimes you gotta, I gotta let that go. Right. Not the the history of it, but this person is not blocking me Mm -hmm. right like i think about fred hampton talking about trying to work with other people you know and and other leaders right like you talked about back in the day i'm sure ida b wells wasn't fucking around with them suffragettes right like she was like yo fuck them chicks (laughs) but she had to find a way exactly right so how do we find those ways when the trauma and hurt can feel insurmountable right so Solve solve this for me in the minutes, <laughs> in the few minutes that we have remaining before we get to the drop. You know, facetiously, I know you're not going to solve that. No one's going to solve that for us in this moment. But I'm just curious because you, you're in these spaces so much and, you know, design should be about solving problems. And I'm curious if that's a problem we see as solvable.
1: Well, I think the question of trauma is really important because... Yeah. I love. There's a piece in the book about trauma-informed design, yeah. which is a really uh, rapidly expanding discipline. And yeah, absolutely, the definition that's shared in in that piece by uh, Rachel DeKiss Miller is: trauma is anything that happens too fast, too soon, too much. You know, anything that you're not ready for and you can't handle. And that's something we have all experienced. Yeah.
0: And that's a great, and it's a great essay. I want to underline that it's a great essay because in it, she even talks about the singularity of trauma, meaning that something could be traumatic for me that's not traumatic for another person, even though we experience the same thing. Right. So that's why I'm underlying like, it's not to dismiss any of this. Right. I'm just trying to understand it better because it often seems like, the language makes it difficult Mm -hmm. for folks to come together.
1: Yeah. And I think about this with my students a lot because they are the generation that talks about mental health openly. They're the generation that um, is very transparent about their mental health. Um, And I, I want them to be empowered to use that as a, a positive thing and not to be distracted by it or to be bogged down by it. And I mean, I think it's a tension that we all bring to our work, right? Is when to, you know, this reminds me of uh, a big part of Audre Lorde's work was about when to focus on self-preservation and when to focus on the doing and the, you know, the organizing and the uh, activism. And that's a tension that we all walk. It's a, you know, it's tension that we all deal with in our work, but yeah, I I think the question of how to solve that, um, it's big. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I want to make sure I'm sorry. I want to make sure I'm addressing your actual question.
0: Um, you are, you are, because I I think that's what makes it tough, right? Like, I don't even know, to be honest, my job is to interrogate and ask (laughs) questions, but I often ask them with the full knowledge that I don't even know if there is one answer, right? And I think the answer also is going to depend on the what, right? The What's the the conflict? Who the people are? What the circumstance? Like, there's so many things to it. I just know it's something that I see all the time, right? Like, I, I just, I read it and I see it and I think about it. I try to reflect on my own place in the world and not to do that thing that like old people do. Oh, we were just tougher. Right. Cause (sighs) I'm like, Mm -hmm. I don't want to be tough. Right. (laughs) Like, like all of that to me is, is patriarchy talk. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, I don't want to be tough. Right. That's, I don't want to be hardened in order to go through life. Right.
1: And I think that's something that it comes through a lot in the chapter about care um the different contributors in that chapter address it in different ways it's through lenses like motherhood and um and trauma-informed design but they demonstrate the ways that it is powerful to uh to work and you know be in community from a standpoint of care from a standpoint of you know taking care of ourselves and taking care of others that is where power comes from that's where power comes from you know individually but also from collectives.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's really essential work, which is why when I have smart people like you, I try to like I I try to use you guys to make me a little smarter. <laughs> right. <laughs> and 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 help me work through things that I'm trying to to understand better. Because I think if we can if we can do that, then we when we probably have a, a better chance at all of this working, right? And our our enemies of which there are many they're focused, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. right? Like they don't, they like, you know, I think about your chapter around plurality, right? Which is a a, a beautiful chapter. Like we're, we're not going to get to a long conversation about it just given the time. But, you know, again, it's one of these notions that I think is so critical, but the other side's plurality is like hate,
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> right? So that's a that's a powerful unifying force, you know? We don't have that on our side right? We have just all this other shit.
1: <laughs> it's true. <laughs> well, I think the other side of plurality is, is that individual focus, that individuality, that individualism that, that is so prominent today. Um, and I will say, you know, the places we're trying to get to, we won't get there without the plurality, but also without the care for each other, without the focus on community. Those are the things we need.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, I want to get to the drop, and the drop is just our, as our recommendations to our readers. It could be anything at all. I actually have a drop that's kind of wide ranging, which is um, to kind of dive into the work of of Alice Walker. Alice Walker is is most famously known for the Color Purple. It's been on my mind a little bit because there's a there's a new version of the Color Purple um, that's going to be released. It would have been released by the time this airs, but I think it's supposed to come out Christmas Day.
1: The new movie, um, you mean?
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like a musical yeah. version of The Color Purple. And I, I will likely see it, but I, I probably won't go to the movies to see it because I won't be here. But I, I, I'm a fan of the original movie because I remember when that movie came out, there was such like angry debate. In the black community, and this is before there was like the internet, so you could just imagine, right? The the pages of Ebony and Jet were on fire, right, <laughs> with with denunciations of of Alice Walker and what was perceived as um, her hatred of of black men and all the rest of it. But I think pop, through pop culture, we've come to a new appreciation of the movie, and so I'm curious about this new one. But most most importantly, I feel like people should engage with Alice Walker's books work beyond the color purple mm-hmm. and she has a, a collection of diaries and journals that have been published maybe two years ago, maybe a year and a half but you know she's she's a, a controversial figure for a lot of reasons but she is if one thing completely honest and true to herself. so I, my my drop is to engage with the works of Alice Walker and I'll have her journal um, posted in the show notes. so that's my drop. And you're up.
1: So my drop is uh, another podcast that I that I want to share. Um, it's called Lean Back, um, Critical Feminist Conversations. And it's led by a dear colleague of mine that I mentioned earlier, uh, Dr. Lisa Corrigan, and uh, also her co-host, Laura Weiderhoft. And the podcast is a great place for people to start um, after they read this book and they are thinking what now what do i do Uh, or what next and it has uh, i think up to eight seasons now dive into the the you know the back episodes of it it's a really really rich place to think about the bigger concepts of feminism right now through very very timely lenses What's happening in politics, what's happening in culture, what's happening in higher education, all kinds of things. So it's a really, really wonderful podcast. I think anyone interested in my book would be very interested in um in that
0: absolutely. it's it sounds amazing, an awesome, awesome drop. And all these conversations are are so needed because these ideas are woven through every part of of our lives. So as much as we can, you know, learn from them, tackle them, challenge each other, find each other. And a thing I often implore f- for us to do. Um, I think it's critical. Yeah, Alison, I wanna I wanna thank you so much for for joining me on the deep dive. You know, this has been a great conversation. Again, the the title of the book, Feminist Designer, on the personal and the political in design. Add it to your um to your library. Add it to your um to all of your syllabus professors that are out there like this if you're teaching design or really if you're teaching how to think <laughs> um this book should be part of your of your syllabus so thank you so much for being on a deep dive with me. Thank you Philip this was wonderful you can listen to the deep dive via Apple Podcasts and our website thedeepdivepod.com download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.